Amen. Thank you, worship team, and thank you, church. As you are finding your seats, also please find your Bibles. Yeah. And uh, turn with me to the book of First Peter. And we're going to be continuing our series there in this incredible, incredible gift to us from God. This book uh, revealed through the pen of the Apostle Peter and yet the Word of God for us today. And uh, as, we, as you're turning there, I want you to think about that song we just sang. It is well with my soul. I'm not asking for a show of hands or anything this morning, but... Uh, is that the case for you this morning? Is your soul well today? What about tomorrow? What about Tuesday? How about uh, Wednesday? What's Thursday going to bring? Is your soul still going to be well? Or maybe this morning you say, no, my soul's not actually well. I sang the song because everybody else was singing and I wanted to not look strange, but... I'm having trouble right now. My soul does not feel well. I think that a dissatisfaction with where we are increasingly strikes me as the most common of human experiences. I think that a sense of this is not the way things are meant to be kind of becomes the defining aspect of our lives. Uh, many of you know this, I like to read, but I don't have a lot of time to sit and read. And so there are these incredible things today called audiobooks. How many of you are audiobook fans? You can, you can raise your hand on this one. It's not nearly as self-revelatory as is it well with your soul. But audiobooks are one of my favorite discoveries, and I thoroughly enjoy them. I live a, bit, a little bit farther out. I've got a long drive, a long commute. And so it enables me to consume really quite a few books. Well, I read widely. I don't just read nonfiction or fiction. I read a little bit of everything. And I just finished up a book by a German author named Cornelia Funke. And I would ask Caleb how to say that, because I don't think that's probably how you pronounce that. But nonetheless, it's called The Thief Lord. And in this book, there's these children who are recognizing the constraints of what it is to be a child. How many things there are that adults get to do that they don't get to do? Kids in here, do you guys ever feel like that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you do, Mike, guess. Right, you get into this mode of thinking like, oh, those adults, they get to do all the cool stuff. Adults, how many of you would trade your job, your bills, and all of those things in for a heartbeat to be a child again? There's the amens right there. All right, right? Like, so it seems like kids want to grow up and be adults, and adults want to regress and become kids. Well, in this book, Cornelia, the author, imagines a mechanic by which it, they can do that. There's this magical merry-go-round, and you can ride it one direction, and you can get older, and you can ride it the other direction, and you can get younger. And as I was listening to this, I was like, that's just us. Very few are the times, very few are the days where I find myself saying, this life, this moment, this is exactly, exactly the way I would draw this up. This, this is as good as it's going to get until tomorrow, which is going to be even better than today. I just don't find myself saying that that often. There's always something I'd want to change. There's something that I'd want to shift around. That hasn't changed since the first century when Peter was writing this book. People have always said, I want something different. I want something to be changed in my life. 
And as we come to this text, and we're going to look at it, we're going to take it just kind of some chunks, piece by piece, a little bit longer text than what we looked at last week. It's, we're going to break it up a little bit. I'm not going to read all of it at once, but I want us to see what Peter is doing. Is he's trying to get us to see that because of Christ, we can shift our focus. We don't have to be locked into a life we're dissatisfied with anymore. But the solution is not the one that is often presented. It's not to have fewer responsibilities. It's not to have more responsibilities. It's not to know more about the world. It's not to know less about the world. The solution is, in typical Peter fashion, Jesus. And he's going to show us Jesus this morning, I hope. So if you would, take your Bibles with me, and we're going to be picking up in chapter 3, looking at verse 8 together. Finally, now I just got to stop there for just a second, actually. Finally, anytime you hear a preacher say finally, you know it's not final, right? It means nothing. This is a meaningless word that we just throw into things. Well, the same thing is true for Peter, right? He says finally, and it's chapter three. We still got two chapters to go yet. Don't be surprised. This is not a final finally. This is a preacher and one more thing, all right? Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing for the one who wants to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. There's a little phrase right there in, chat, in verse 10. Did you catch it? The one who wants to love life. The one who wants to love life. This is really, I think, the problem that we face. This is what the children and the adults in the Thief Lord, that book, this is what they were facing. They wanted to love life, and they found themselves in a place where they didn't love life. You and I find ourselves in a place where, regardless of our age, regardless of our uh, employment status, regardless of our gender, regardless of any other thing, we find ourselves in a position where we are saying, we want to love life. And so Peter says, you want to love your life? I'll tell you how to love your life. And he proceeds to break that down. Now, these are not Peter's words. Peter's not inventing this kind of off the top of his head. Instead, he is going back to the Old Testament and he's quoting from the psalmist. Paraphrasing might be a better way of putting it, but this is, this is coming from Psalm 34. He's reflecting on Psalm 34 and he's saying, hey, just like the psalmist wanted to love life, I've got people here that want to love life and how do we do that? How do we get to the point where our life Instead of being an annoyance, instead of being something we want to escape from, how can we make this something we want to dive into? Something that we want to embrace and have become something that we love. And Peter says it's, it's all right there. Keep your tongue from evil. Turn away from evil. Do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. He quotes that from the psalm, but what does he say before that? Finally, yeah, right, Peter. All of you be like-minded and sympathetic. 
love one another, be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing for you were called to this. For this is the one who loves life. The first thing that Peter wants us to understand is if we want to love our life, we've got to quit looking at our life. This sounds counterintuitive, right? If, if you want to love life, quit looking at your life. The, the problem with so many of us, the reason we're dissatisfied is we've, we've taken a dissecting scalpel to our life and we've, we've just sliced in, we're digging in, we're looking at it all in detail because that's the only thing we're focused on. And of course we're gonna find stuff we don't like. If all we're looking at is this life, me, myself, I, looking out for number one, well, of course we're gonna be dissatisfied. When we, when we just look at us, we're going to lose sight of something that's vital. There are other people out there. No, 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 this is, this is huge. This is revelatory, apparently. Because all of us have a natural tendency to live as if we were the only person. I have a very interesting family. I'll just say that as, as politely as I can. You guys have interesting families. I'm not saying anything bad. I'm not throwing my family under the bus. I have an interesting family. My extended family is very interesting. And I have a family member who has kind of really never left the 60s, kind of still stuck back there. And we were having a conversation one time and he's like, look, look, the world is whatever you think it to be. Okay, tell me more. You are the only one that exists. All of this reality is living inside of your head. And I'm like, you are? What's that say about me? But that's the world. That's the perspective that the world is giving us. Look, you are the only one that matters. Follow your heart. Do what you want to do. If you want to hate your life, go for it. You are not the only one that exists. There are all of these other people. If you're really brave, I dare you to do this. Look around the room right now. Make awkward eye contact with somebody else in this space. Those are real people. They have real dreams, desires, ambitions, hopes. They have stuff in their life that they are ashamed of and they have stuff in their life they are super proud of. And they got things they're really excited about coming up in the week ahead and they got stuff they really hate that happened last week. And their life is everybody, every bit as rich and vibrant as yours and they're likely as dissatisfied with what's going on in their world as what's going on in your world. We are not by ourselves. We, Peter says, need to get our eyes off of ourselves and look at those around us. If we want to have a life we love, live for others. Live for others. This is the point. Like, Be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble. This is all others kind of language. Now, when I say live for others, here's the problem. Some of us, can't get ourselves out of the reference. When, when I say live for others, I'm not saying live for others' approval. Live in such a way to manipulate other people to think what you want them to think about you. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying forget you. Recognize the needs in those around you. Jesus is the perfect example of this. Like, he's kind of the perfect example of everything perfect, right? That's kind of the definition of being Jesus, but he is meant to be our example. 
He is the one that shows us what it looks like to live this way. One of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark is when Jesus and his disciples need some rest. They need a break. They've been going 100 miles an hour. They haven't stopped. There's been no let up. And Jesus says, you know what? Y'all, let's get in a boat. That's often the solution, right? Some of you are lake people. Some of you are boat people. Like, get on the boat. That's the solution. That's what Jesus says. Get on the boat. Let's go someplace. Let's go away for a bit. Let's rest. Well, the crowd runs around and catches him on the other side. And Jesus gets off the boat. And you know what he does? Desperate need of rest. Desperate need of some personal time. And he serves them. And he teaches them. Now, there's a balance here because you and I aren't Jesus. And you've heard this saying, you can't pour water out of an empty bucket. Yes. But I don't think the problem in our society today is a bunch of us walking around with empty buckets. I think the problem is we've all filled our buckets with the wrong stuff. We've gotten ourselves so busy, so wrapped up in our ambitions, our desires, our drives. We're not satisfied with this. We think, why would anybody else be satisfied with this? Instead of pouring out of the living water that Jesus says is supposed to be welling up inside of his people, we're trying to pour out of us. Well, yeah, you're going to have to stop and refill that from time to time. But living like Jesus, recognizing the need for the break, taking the break when it's available, we have examples of him doing that. But here in this moment, seeing the crowd, seeing their need, he says, I'm going to put my needs on hold so that I can minister to their needs. Society's gonna tell you that's exactly the wrong way to do it. Society's gonna tell you, nope, you've gotta, you've gotta have some self-care, you gotta practice some self-love, you gotta do this. Yes, time to time you do, but most of the time, Jesus is enough. That, that's, that's a joke, actually. Jesus is enough all the time, right? We as Christ followers live in this place where that song we sang earlier is meant to be something that is true of us all the time. It is well with my soul. You all know the story of that song, hopefully. If you don't, just briefly, right, the guy who wrote that song wrote that song while sailing over the spot where his family had drowned. And he could write those words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, even so. Praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. That is the kind of reaction that can only come out of somebody who is no longer living for themselves, who is, who is no longer purely looking at their life, what they've gone through, their experiences. They have opened their eyes to see God is at work even when it hurts, even when I don't understand. Peter says that we are to be like-minded, to be sympathetic. I love that word, sympathy. We, we, we make a lot about the distinction between sympathy and empathy, and you've heard those kind of things. But, but, but both of them, to be like-minded or to be sympathetic or to be empathetic, to love one another, to be compassionate, to be humble, implies that what we're doing is we're taking our eyes off of us and we're putting our eyes on others just like Jesus did who looked at the crowds and mourned for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Who looked at the ones who, even as they're gambling for his clothing, 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're just doing their job. This is radical, what Peter is calling us to. This is challenging. Because here's the thing. Jesus forgiving his enemies while he's on the cross, I don't think following him is going to lead us to any simpler looking at others, understanding others. Some of those that we're going to have to think about, some of those that we're going to have to live for are those who are opposed to us. Who, who are the ones, the very ones, who cannot stand our existence. Which is difficult, to say the least. This is a key theme throughout 1 Peter. This idea that we're living as sojourners. This is not our home. We're living in a foreign place. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and yet we find ourselves, wherever it is on the face of the planet, we find ourselves. And there are others who may not understand that allegiance that we've given to Christ, who may not be willing to let us live that way, who are not content to hear our explanation of why we do what we do. It's tough to love others. It's tough to love others, is it not? I love the way Anne Lamott puts it in her book, Hallelujah Anyways. Challenging read. She is a Christ follower, but she shares some views that I do not share. But nonetheless, I love this phrase. She's got this up on her wall. She said, love, baby, love is hard. Love is seeing the darkness in another person and defying the impulse to jump ship. Love is hard. Love one another. Live for others. Defy that natural instinct to say, no, I'm going to abandon ship. This is so prevalent in our culture. And I'm not saying there aren't toxic people, but there's not nearly as many toxic people as you think there are. If I see or hear one more Facebook post about, you just got to get rid of the negativity, get rid of the toxic people in your life. Well, sometimes those toxic people are the very people that are meant to be shaping you into the image of Christ. Have you ever thought that instead of cutting people out of your life, you ought to bring Jesus into their life? Love is hard. Love is seeing the darkness in another person and defying the impulse to jump ship. We live in a culture that is telling us, jump overboard. Run away, cut off relationship. And Peter and Jesus continually call us no. Go in, lean in, live for others. But we need to, as we do that, make sure that our focus is not just on the other. Hold on, am I, am I devaluing my entire first point? No. But we need to understand that if we are living for others, we will inevitably disappoint, be disappointed. Because all of our best efforts, all of our greatest loves, all of our sacrifices are not enough to produce transformation in that person. And if we live to see them change, we will live disappointed despite our best efforts. We live for others, but we do so remembering the Lord. We do so remembering the Lord. Jesus himself points us to this, does he not? Jesus says to us, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done it for me. Wherever we meet 
need in somebody else, Jesus says, that's me. You're meeting me in that moment. That changes the dynamic a little bit. We're not meeting that coworker who's abrasive and loud and apparently doesn't know where their bathroom with its shower is located. We are not meeting them. We are meeting Christ. We are not meeting that exceedingly frustrating neighbor who insists on dumping all of their grass over on our yard and just wait, the leaves are going to start falling. Guess where their leaves are going? We're not meeting them. We're meeting Jesus. Remember the Lord. This is what Peter says. He says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Live for others, Peter says in this first section. Then in this next section, he says, hey, they still might not get it. It might not work out. You may suffer for righteousness, but you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. What's his solution? But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, regard Christ as Lord, as holy. Now, that sounds very different from that Facebook advice, does it not? Get rid of those toxic people. Peter says, no. Remember that Jesus is holy. Cut them off. No. Remember that Jesus is set apart. I don't understand everything that Peter says here. And I think that's because I haven't yet learned to live what Peter says here. Oftentimes, understanding, we think about it in an academic setting. We think about we're sitting at the desk, we're watching the teacher on the blackboard. Okay, now I get it. Some of you know how to do algebra. That was the hardest three years of my life. I still don't understand it. You could stand at the blackboard and you could do algebraic equations up there, and I would never be able to, I think to myself, I would never be able to understand that. And yet, here's the crazy thing that I realized the other day. I was trying to help my daughter with some math. And I was like, well, it's just like when I'm doing this woodworking project and I need to find this angle and I've only got these two pieces. I was like, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, light bulb moment. I'm doing algebra. So here's me with this mental block saying, I can never do algebra. I can never wrap my head around it. I can never grasp it. And yet then I find myself doing it day-to-day life, which is strange because that's what my mom always told me. You'll use this one day. And I insisted I wouldn't. And yet here I am doing it, using it. When we keep our faith in an academic setting, oftentimes we're not going to understand it. Once we get out in the real world and we start using it, we start encountering those people with needs who are stubbornly refusing to do what we want them to do, then we're told, remember the Lord. Regard Christ as holy. It's in the application that we find understanding. It's not in the study that we find understanding so often when it comes to our faith. It's when we start living it out that it begins to click, begins to make sense. Remember the Lord. Regard Christ as holy. And then what does he say? ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We are going to encounter, Peter says, people who are Jesus to us. And they're going to also need Jesus from us. They are Jesus. Their need is Christ's invitation to understanding for us. 
But often their need is Jesus from us. Remember the Lord, not just so that you can understand, not just so that you can live this out. Remember the Lord so that you can give him to others. This is challenging to say the least. This is difficult because of what we've made this verse say. So many of us view this verse as an encouragement to personal evangelism. We view this, this is, this is one of those hit verses, right? This is what the pastor pulls out when the people aren't sharing their faith enough, right? You always got to be ready to give an answer for the faith. Why are you giving an answer? Because you're living it out. This is not a call to go and take your Bible and beat somebody over the head with some Bible verses. This is a call for your life to be so radically transformed because your eyes are so fixed on Christ. My gaze transfixed by Jesus' face. We sang that this morning too, didn't we? This is a call for our lives to be lived in light of that kind of transfixing glory. The kind of glory you can't pull your eyes away from is inevitably going to have an impact on your life, Peter says. And when people see that, when toxic people see that, and instead of you running away from them, you're running towards them, that's going to confuse the heck out of them. And they're going to ask, what is going on with you? Jesus. D.L. Moody said that sharing the gospel is just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. We don't have to have all the answers. We, We don't have to be able to talk Greek or Hebrew. We've just got to be able to say, this, the reason I live like this, the reason I look crazy is because of Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have because your life has been so radically transformed by the gospel that you are able then to share the hope of the gospel. This is, this is incredible that when we remember the Lord, Peter says, not only are we able to continue living for others in spite of persecution, but when we remember the Lord, we are able to point them to where Christ is. I grew up in the western United States, and I grew up in a family that was outdoors. We were hunting, we were farming, we were doing all of that stuff, and I loved it. But there were times where my dad's big adult legs were much uh, more capable of handling the terrain out west than my little kid legs. And I remember one hunting trip in particular where we were out and we'd been out all morning chasing elk through the Frank Church wilderness. And we were out there and and I'm walking along and it's getting to that point in the day, it's a little hot, I'm a little tired. And so I'm doing what every child does when they're hot and when they're tired. I'm whining. You know, I used to wonder, I used to think, man, we're not very good at this hunting thing. Because I would talk to friends, they'd go hunt and they'd come back with game. We'd never come back with anything. And I finally realized many years later, it was because I was always whining. Dad's trying to hunt and I'm just back there, why are we walking so far? You know, like all the time. And dad, finally, this one day, he looked at me and said, do you know where we are? I was like, well, no, I just know I'm tired and I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm done. Do you know where we are? And we came up over this little rise and there was the truck with sandwiches, with water, with everything, with rest. 
It was right there the whole time. And all of my whining could have been prevented if I just would have realized where the destination was. Set Christ apart as holy so that not only do you, in the midst of this life that you are dissatisfied with, not only do you then learn, just wait, Jesus is right there, but you can point others to him as well. My dad knew where we were, so he wasn't worried about hunger, thirst. I didn't know where we were. When we know where Jesus is, we're able to not just have hope for ourselves, we're able to give hope to others. This world is not the way it should be, and yet, and yet, Jesus is right there. And he is the way he's supposed to be. You're dissatisfied, you're struggling, you're fearful, you're doubting. Jesus is right there. When we come to the gospel, when we come to Christ, Jesus is the gospel, when we come to the good news, it is not meant to produce in us this crushing weight. It's not meant to demoralize us. It's not meant to cast our minds into doubt and fear and uncertainty. What it's intended to do is show us Jesus, the bread of life. And so Peter says, remember him. Verse 16, yet do this, giving an answer, with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be good, God's will, than for doing evil. We remember Christ. Peter says that's going to help us with holiness. If we forget Christ and we're in the midst of all of this, it's going to be very tempting for us to just say, well, you know, what's the point? Why bother? Might as well go for what I can get now, be it money or fame. Whatever it is that... I want, I'm going to go for it. And Peter says, no, remember Jesus. Your suffering is not the end. But if you're going to suffer, you might as well suffer for doing good rather than for what is evil. Remember the Lord. Jackie Hill Perry, I talked about her a couple weeks ago, wrote a book, Holier Than Thou. And one of the quotes from that came up this week for me. The soil from which all sin grows is unbelief. The soil from which all sin grows is unbelief. It's not unbelief in a generic sense. Oh, I can't believe that. No, it's, it's a specific unbelief. It's an, a disbelief, an unwillingness to believe and to remember Jesus. Every single sin comes from us not regarding Christ as holy in our hearts from not setting Christ apart in our minds, from not allowing our gaze to be transfixed. Every single sin is a direct result of our unbelief. And so Peter says, you want to love your life? Remember Jesus. If you're going to suffer, suffer for the good, not for doing evil. Fight that sin because of Jesus. We, church, are called to Christ we are not called to a list of rules and regulations. We, we are not called to Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night church attendance. We are called to Christ. And we are called to those who are his body. 
And we are called to those in need. And the moment we take our eyes off of him, we're going to miss our calling. We're going to fall away from holiness from Christ. Now here's the, the, the problem as we, as we talk about this. We want to remember the Lord, yes. But the problem is that so many of us have been conditioned to think in terms of a to-do list. We have been conditioned to think in terms of, oh my goodness, this is something I've got to do better. Well, that's probably true. Unless you are perfectly perfect in every way, you're not there yet. But that's not the point. That's still keeping your eyes on you. If you're continually just looking at yourself and evaluating yourself and berating yourself, then you've missed the whole point. Peter is saying, look at Jesus. How is it that you can continue and persevere? How is it that you can pursue holiness? How is it that you can give an answer for the hope that is in you? How is it that you can love even those who would hurt you? How is it that you can live for others, that you can love one another, that you can be sympathetic, that you can be compassionate? How is that possible? Peter says, because of what Jesus has already done, not what you're getting ready to do. What you're getting ready to do is the fruit of what Christ has already done. And so the final thing that we need to do, Peter says, is rest in salvation. We need to rest in salvation. Look at verse 18. For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Peter says, okay, hold on just a second. In case you're thinking I'm telling you, substitute the Old Testament law for this new law. Substitute this list of things to do for a new list of things to do. He says, no, remember, Jesus already did it. You're just living it out. You're enjoying the fruit of that. The life you love is the fruit of the life that Christ lived. It's a challenge. It's a call. It's hard. Yes, but you're not able to just grit your teeth and do it. Rest in him quoted this last week, take my burden upon you, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He says that because he's already done it. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. It's about to get weird, by the way. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In in it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Where are you going with this, Peter? This is one of the hardest passages to interpret in the New Testament. And I'm going to stand in front of you today and say, I don't know exactly what Peter means. And I feel comfortable doing that because some other really smart people have said the same thing. I don't know exactly what he's saying, but here's what I do want to encourage us. Don't in this miss what Peter's saying. 
Here's the problem. A lot of times when we come to a passage like this, it's one of those moments where it's like, oh, wait, I have no idea. What are we talking about? Spirits in prison and Jesus going and preaching to them and, and people getting saved by baptism. And I thought that wasn't how that worked and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. A lot of times what we mistake is we, we kind of zoom in on the picture. Right? We, we, we want to zoom in and say, well, what does he mean by this statement? What does he mean by spirits in prison? What does he mean by baptism saving you? And we can zoom in, we can talk about that. There's a lot to talk about there. This morning, that's not what I want to do. This morning, I want to encourage us to do something different. I want to encourage us to zoom out. Right? If you've got a picture and you're working on it, you're editing it, and you're zoomed in on one little corner of it, and you're doing your work and you're, you're, you're in there, you're fixing, you're touching up, how many of you are Photoshop users, right? You're in there, you're, you're looking at it. It's amazing what cameras on phones can do now. It's like everybody's now a Photoshop expert. It's like, no, you're not. Your algorithm's a Photoshop expert. That picture's not yours. That's Google's. They did that. But we all want to retouch things. We want to look better. And so we zoom in. Well, here's the thing. When you zoom in, you sometimes miss the bigger picture. I don't want us to miss the big picture here. Let's zoom out. So what does Peter do here? He says that Christ is the one who saves everybody. He didn't just save you. He didn't just save the disciples. All of those in the Old Testament who are saved are saved because of Jesus. They're not saved because they were keeping rules. They're not saved because they were honoring God better than we do. No, they're saved by Jesus. I think that's what he's saying. He talks about these spirits in prison. Jesus went and proclaimed to them. I think that's what he's saying. I could be wrong. But zooming out, that makes the most sense given the flow of Peter's argument here because he wants us to get our eyes on Jesus. He doesn't want us to get distracted by this stuff. And then he goes in and he talks about Noah and the ark. And he talks about how baptism now saves you. Well, we know from the rest of scripture, that's not true. We know scripture doesn't contradict itself. So if baptism at work saves us, then we've got something to rethink because we've been saying all this time, Jesus is the what saves us. I don't think Peter's saying that, oh, you got to get baptized if you want to get saved. The thief on the cross, Peter knows that story. He didn't get baptized, but he was sure saved. So Peter must not be saying that. Instead, he says, look at the waters of the judgment. Look at the waters of judgment swirling around that flood narrative. And look at these saved, not through their own effort. And then he says, and you too, you went into the water, but you came out, not through your own effort. They weren't saved by their superior shipbuilding capability any more than you and I are saved by getting washed in the waters of baptism. His point is that we are saved through the water by a power not of our own. When we zoom out, we begin to see, okay, we can debate particulars all day long. But what we need to do is rest in our salvation. If Jesus was able to save people who lived we don't know how many years ago, and if he's going to be able to save those who are on this earth, should he tarry long after we're gone? Then surely he can save us now. If we will fix our eyes on Christ then we will begin to see his salvation played out in our lives. If we will fix our eyes in Christ and rest in our salvation through him, 
We don't have to worry. We don't have to be frustrated. We don't have to fret about the people around us. We don't have to worry about our lives. We're able to turn it over to him. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. Christ follower, you can rest in your salvation because Jesus is in charge. When you're facing hard times, when those doubts come, you can rest in your salvation because Jesus is in charge. I don't have all the answers. Neither do you. And Peter says, that's okay. We can rest in him. You want to live a life you love? Quit thinking about it. Live for others. You want to live a life you love? Don't think about what you want. Think about Jesus. You come to the point where you're not sure if you can go on? Rest. Rest in him.